0: Good morning, Sweetwater Christian Church, and uh, good morning, everyone watching online. Glad that you could join us in worship uh, this morning as well. I'm Zane Goggins. I'm the pastor here, and I'm glad to be with you to share the love and word of God with you this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray and ask for receptive hearts and minds, so if you'll bow with me in prayer. Father, I ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that receive your love and word this morning. And I ask that everything that I made up or came out of my brain won't be remembered by anybody else's, fall on deaf ears, fall to the ground. But God, I pray and I ask that everything you have to say to us this morning would not just be received with gladness and joy, but also shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, so that the world may know him. We love you and ask for the grace to love you more. In your son's name, Jesus, amen. So we're following the lectionary in pursuit of what Eugene Peterson calls congruent lives. We're finding places in our hearts that are incongruent with the life and the teachings of Jesus so that over time we can be shaped and molded into his image rather than what other image comes along. We want to look more like Jesus. We pray for it every week. We want our lives to look like his. And if we want our lives to look more like his, that means we want Jesus for more than just the benefits that he gives us. We want Jesus for more than what we get out of the relationship. If we want Jesus for what we get out of him, then do we really want him? But if we want to be shaped and molded into his image and be ambassadors on the earth and and truly change, that's what it looks like to want Jesus, Jesus himself. So over the last few weeks, As we've journeyed through the lectionary, uh, we've come across some teachings from Jesus that uh, are meant to highlight some of these incongruencies in our lives so that we can address them and change our minds about the way we live so that we can start to live and look like Jesus does. Uh, And in the Bible, there's a name for that process of changing our minds when we notice how our lives are incongruent with Jesus. In Greek, that process is called metamelomai. You should learn that word, metamelomai. More commonly in the New Testament, the word metamelomai is translated as repent. That's a church word, isn't it? That's a church word that comes with a little bit of baggage, doesn't it? got some baggage associated in our culture because of how maybe some Christians have misused it to harass certain people or groups or communities. It's gotten to the point where if the preacher says, repent, we either get a little squirmy uh, or we get really excited because we're about to hear about somebody else's sin, right? We've got to get out of that cycle of being either scared of repentance or wanting to use it to belittle others and feel better about ourselves because repentance is actually a really beautiful process of a life changing to look more like Jesus' life. That's a beautiful thing, not a squirmy or a scary thing. When we find incongruencies and then change our mind to look more like Jesus' That's a beautiful process of repentance at work in us. Our text today is a story in the life of Jesus where different kinds of people are faced with incongruencies. And it's what they choose to do with those incongruencies is what our text today is about. You'll see two groups of people that when they meet Jesus, they recognize that they have to change their minds about some things. But each group handles that differently. So our text is a little unique. It's a parable from Jesus, but it's super short. The parable actually isn't really the whole point of the text. Usually, when Jesus gives a parable, it is the text, you know, it, it's like a one big story. Uh, <clears throat> but today, Jesus simply uses a parable to help the religious leaders understand that they are the parable happening in real time. So we will be in Matthew 21, 23 through 32. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. The Bibles in front of you or under you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can have that one. If you want to learn the Bible or study the Bible together, email me. We'll set up a time or bring it up in your new small group. Matthew 21, 23 through 32. <clears throat> for context of our passage today, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And at this point, he's been in Jerusalem for at least a few days. Uh, We don't really know how long, but at the very beginning of this chapter is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Do you remember that scene? He's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem from the east side, and uh, people are throwing their clothes or palm branches on the ground, and they're worshiping him in the streets. It's the scene from Palm Sunday that we celebrate every year before Easter. And it's the last time that he's going to go into Jerusalem because just five chapters from now, he's going to be sentenced to execution. And so he's in the temple, which is actually kind of a big deal because just a couple paragraphs before, Jesus was flipping tables and throwing all the money that people were making through commerce in the temple on the ground. And so he made this really big scene it was an intense scene. The religious leaders hated it. And Matthew says that all the children loved it. The children were looking at it and they were praising Jesus because they thought it was really cool what he was doing. But all the really serious adults really hated it. And after that, Jesus decides to return to the scene to be confronted by religious leaders again. And so that's where we'll be today. We're in the temple, there's lots of tension, and the religious leaders are about to learn about some incongruencies in their lives. So Matthew 21, 23 through 32. Uh, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I'll also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another, if I say from heaven, then he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? If we say it's human origin, we're afraid of the crowd for all the regard John has as a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first son and he said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father asked the second son the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir. But later he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And they answered the first and Jesus said to them truly I tell you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you For John came and you John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes they believed him Even after you saw it you did not change your minds and believe him <clears throat> So this text today is Pretty easily split up into two sections. And in your Bibles, it's probably already split up into two sections, even though it's happening in the same time in the same place. It's the same, it's the same story. Uh, so we'll just kind of take it in its two chunks and, and bring them into conversation with each other. And the, the first half of this text is why Jesus had to tell the parable. And then the second half of the text is telling the parable to get the religious leaders to realize that they need to change their minds. They need to repent. So the first half of the text, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they catch him teaching in the temple where he just caused a big scene earlier and they're probably pretty angry to see him there. Uh, So they start grandstanding a bit and they start challenging his authority. They basically say, who gave you the right to stand up in God's temple and not only act the way you did, but then come back and actually teach here. This is the chief priests and the elders talking. This isn't just the the normal Pharisees that that we we usually come up against. These are highly qualified, highly educated, highly dedicated people to serving God. They're, They're insinuating that people like them, are the ones who are supposed to be preaching in the holiest place on earth. This isn't the Sea of Galilee where Jesus normally preaches. This is Jerusalem. It's the big leagues. If you're going to teach in the temple, you ought to have the right kind of qualifications to do so. Uh, It's kind of like you don't just walk into the University of Houston and start teaching a course. At at some point, somebody's going to ask you, do you work here, (laughs) right? Right? And that's what's happening here. They think Jesus is out of place. And when we read this, we might get the impression that the chief priests and the elders seem a little obsessed with authority. They're obsessed with who has it, how they use it, how they got it, and a little obsessed with the fact that they themselves have it. Uh, Authority is the currency by which these people operate they like that they have all the authority in the situation but but Jesus isn't impressed by their obsession instead he says i'll tell you but first what's your opinion on john the baptist was he from god or was, was it all made up it's sort of a trick question one that'll get them in, in trouble if they say yes and one that'll get them in trouble if they say no <clears throat> But Jesus really just wants to see if they're going to be honest. And the honest answer is yes. Everyone agrees that John the Baptist was sent by God. This is a widely accepted belief in Israel. As weird as he was preaching out in the the desert, everyone agrees J the B was a prophet. But they can't say that. They can't say that because if J the B was a prophet who told everyone that Jesus was Messiah then the chief priest's authority is undermined because then everybody is going to know that they don't actually listen to God. But they can't say it was all made up either because then they'll lose credibility with all the people who do believe that J the B was a prophet. The religious leaders are so obsessed with their own authority that submitting to God is not even a realistic option for them. They're wrestling with incongruence in real time. They say they follow the will of God, and at the same time, they can't seem to acknowledge God's will in the life of Jesus' cousin John. This is exactly the kind of inner incongruence Jesus' question is aimed at. So they play practical politics rather than live congruently. They give a classic non-answer. Because those who are obsessed with their own authority will say anything to hold on to what they think they have. We've all heard non answers before. Uh, we've probably all given a non answer at certain situations in our lives. Non answers don't always have to be bad, they don't. Sometimes a non answer can diffuse a tense situation or, or pacify a, a question asked in bad faith. Non-answers aren't always bad. It just kind of depends on the motives that they're used with. They can be skillful or even gentle or kind ways of handling hostility or anonymity or even just simple ignorance. They're meant to force a middle way when a middle way doesn't exist. And so sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. And generally, the middle way is a really good place to live in. Not a lot of enemies, lots of friends, but in this situation, the middle isn't good enough. In a moment in time, when we're faced with an incongruence, we need to change our minds about and change our behavior to be more like Jesus. The middle way is not good enough. In this situation, the middle way is antithetical to the ways of God. Just because they didn't start a religious scandal doesn't mean that they did the right thing. I'm an Enneagram nine. I live in the middle way. I, I in almost every aspect of my life, I love not stirring up things. Uh, and that's good. But, but when we say that, when we say, when our actions and what we say don't line up with each other, opting to not cause a stir and hold on to life as we know it, is incongruent practical politics. And the result of the leaders playing practical politics, forcing the middle way, remaining incongruent, not repenting, and changing their minds, is exactly what they feared in the first place. They feared that their authority would be undermined. They feared that the crowd would stop listening to them and start listening to the street preacher Jesus, the one that they didn't think fit all of the qualifications. The guy who wasn't qualified enough, who had no real authority, and ultimately that's exactly what happened. They undermined themselves. Jesus doesn't even answer their original question because Everyone could now see that they didn't take their faith seriously enough to give a straight answer. And the tables turn instantly. It's no longer those in charge that everyone should listen to. It's Jesus with all the authority in the room. And now, now that Jesus has all the authority in the room, it's his turn to start asking questions. So we just learned why he tells the parable, because. The leaders of the temple, his own religious leaders, are more interested in their own authority than God's. They need to change their minds, they need to metamelami. But just flat out telling someone that they need to change almost never works. And so he tells them a very short parable that actually has a lot to do with them. And there's a father. He's got a vineyard business. Jesus likes his agricultural parables. And he tells his first son to go outside and work. But but the son refuses, which is actually very offensive. It's very offensive. Not only is this his dad, but it's also his employer. It's a very offensive thing to just flat out refuse what your dad and boss is telling you to do. And Jesus sort of downplays it for the sake of keeping the story short. But clearly, this is the problem child. But the problem child's refusal is short-lived. Somewhere along the lines, he met a melamide. He changed his mind and his behavior, and he repented. And he went to work anyway. Sometimes, repentance doesn't always have to be some big moment. Sometimes you just start doing the right thing after doing the wrong thing. That's what the first son does. He just changes his mind and quietly starts doing the right thing. And then the father asks his second son to do the same thing. Go work outside. But his response is exactly what you would expect from a son and an employee. Okay, no problem. I will go. This is the child with all the right answers. The golden child who talks a good game, but doesn't always follow through on his promises. He lies to his dad. He doesn't actually intend to go. And he quietly lets his day go on without doing what he said he would do. He's content to just live with that incongruence. And that's way worse than what the first son did. Right? It's better to be honest about being wrong and then change your mind and behavior than it is to lie and remain a liar. And so Jesus asks, who did the will of the Father? Not who espoused the will of the Father, who did the will of the Father? Who did it? Jesus wants to wants us to see the severity of what it means to talk a good religious game and then quietly live a completely different way. And the religious leaders agree. They say that, well, the first son did the will of the father. It's obvious. He's he's the one that actually worked in the field. He, He did the right thing. He was a pretty offensive person, but at least he did what his dad asked him to. The second son just lied. And this is all really easy to see from the outside looking in. And this is why Jesus tells them the parable. And so he's got to start honing it in and making it personal for them. And so he looks right at the religious leaders. In front of the crowd, he was just interrupted from teaching. And he boldly tells them that tax collectors and prostitutes will enter God's kingdom before they, the chief priests of God, do. And if you were there, you would have heard an audible gasp from the crowd. And you would have seen the chief priests' brow lower in anger and disgust as they imagined those kind of people entering into God's kingdom. And above all, it's from Jesus, the guy who isn't so qualified to teach like he's teaching. Jesus basically just told them they are the second son in the parable. They are the golden child who talks a good game and they say all the right things. They say to the father that they will do his will and then quietly live a completely different way. Meanwhile, the offensive people, the problem children who are so openly and publicly not obeying the will of God, they're the ones who metamelomide, and they listened to John the Baptist when, they ta- when, they, when he talked about the Messiah. Many of them took his message of repentance to heart in such a way that they changed their minds and began to follow God rather than their own way. One of them even became one of Jesus' closest disciples and wrote the Gospel of Matthew, right? Tax collector. The ones that didn't seem to belong in the kingdom were the ones who took their faith seriously enough Not to give a no answer to the call of repentance. The religious leaders didn't repent. The offensive people did. And the offensive people became congruent, and the religious leaders remained in incongruence. Jesus is telling us that what is essential in the kingdom of God is not your position, it's not your knowledge. It's not your qualifications. It's not your authority, even if that authority comes from God, like like for the chief priests. It's whether or not we can change our minds and do the will of God when our lives are incongruent with what we say. It's whether or not we can repent that beautiful process of changing a life to look more like Jesus. Jesus. Repentance is a word that more recently comes with some baggage. But Jesus is telling us that repentance leads to a very beautiful life, a more congruent life. And it's not always fun. It's hard to change our minds. It's not always easy to see in real time when we have incongruencies in what we say about God and how we live with God. We'll even opt for some middle way that just doesn't quite Exist and it's not quite good enough. But throughout Jesus' ministry, his message has always been the same. Metamelomai, for the kingdom of heaven is near. His beautiful kingdom is right in front of us. And if we change our minds and not be obsessed with holding on to what we have here, We will find that beautiful process of becoming more and more like Jesus, what we pray for every single week to be shaped into the image of the Son. And that's the process of repentance. Let's pray, and then we're going to have communion together as a family. God, I thank you that you are so good, that you deal with us mercifully, that you deal with us generously, that you deal with us in ways that are good, not according to our own definitions of good. God, I ask that you would help us to find those places in our lives where we're incongruent with what we say and what we do in relation to how we live with you. <coughs> God, I ask for the grace Uh, and the willingness to, to change and to look more and more like Jesus every single day. We love you, and we ask for the grace to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.